I'm Derek Alexander Pope, Managing Director of the Arc of Justice Institute, and welcome to Hidden Legal Figures. Each week, this podcast brings you the lost stories of the heroic and vital contribution that lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. This week, we take a look at William Augustus Boodle, the federal judge who presided over the lawsuit that desegregated the University of Georgia. Joining us is Patrick Longin, a professor at the Mercer University School of Law in Macon, Georgia. Judge Boodle was a wise uh, and courageous man, and we were lucky uh, that the case happened on his watch. Growing up in the South, Friday nights are all about high school football, and in Georgia, Saturday belongs to the Bulldogs. I remember as a teenager, there was nothing more exciting than hearing another Herschel Walker touchdown. And I run a trap with Herschel Walker. Got a whole five, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50. There goes Herschel. There goes Herschel. But in the early 1960s, the sounds were a little different. In 1961, the University of Georgia, the nation's oldest public institution of higher learning, was faced with a quandary. Two black students, Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter, had applied for admission. For over 170 years, UGA had never had a black student. The students filed a lawsuit, and it would be left to one federal judge to address the issue of equality in higher education. Pat Longen is the William Augustus Boodle Chair in Professionalism and Ethics at Mercer University School of Law and director of its Center for Legal Ethics and Professionalism. So I guess that makes him the bona fide expert on Judge Boodle. Pat, welcome to Hidden Legal Figures. But before we get into the case, tell us a little bit about you, how long you've been a professor and how you became to be the William Augustus Boodle Chair. At Mercer. I started teaching full-time in 1991. One of the very few people that went to law school because I wanted to be a law professor. Ended up practicing law for seven years, but um, always wanted to do it. Um, and so in 1991, I took my first full-time job, and that was at the Stetson Law School in okay. Florida. Okay. Uh, in 2000, uh, Mercer uh, received an endowment as a result of some uh, litigation in which some lawyers were accused of uh, with their clients engaging in some misconduct. Those allegations were, were settled, uh, and as part of the settlement, uh, the DuPont Corporation contributed $2.5 million to the Mercer Law School to endow a chair in ethics and professionalism. Okay. Um, Mercer uh, did a search, uh, and I was lucky enough to, to get that job, and I've been at, uh, at Mercer since. And how is it that the chair is named after Judge Boo? A lot of things in Macon are named after Judge Boo. Okay, okay. Uh, he um, had a, a deep uh, ties to Mercer University and to the law school. You know, he was a graduate of uh, Mercer University, a mm. graduate of the law school. Um, actually, was dean of the law school uh, for several years during the uh, Depression and served on the Mercer Board of Trustees for many, many uh, years. Uh, and as a way of honoring him, uh, the law school decided when this uh, opportunity came to create this chair uh, that they would name it for him. 
And did you ever get a chance to meet Judge Boodle? Well, yes. Uh, and, and, and I'll tell you that meeting him uh, the first time was kind of an intimidating mm. uh, thing. Uh, okay. but, but not for long. Okay. Uh, he, he was a charming uh, man. Uh, when I was appointed uh, to the chair in 2000, uh, I came to Macon and I, I met Judge Boodle. Uh, he was in his late 90s uh, at that point. And, of course, as you know, he had one of the world's great voices. And uh, he, he looked at me and, and he said, Now, Longan, I hope you're finding my chair comfortable. Now, that is priceless. Uh, let's go ahead and turn our attention to the case itself and uh, Judge Boodle's involvement in it. There was a book written in the early 80s called Unlikely Heroes by Jack Bass. And in this book, he is talking about federal judges and their handling of the dramatic cases that were taking place during the late 50s and early 60s. Why do you think the author called judges unlikely heroes? And does that characterization fit Judge Boodle? I think unlikely heroes is a very apt characterization, both generally and, and for Judge Boodle, in, in this uh, sense. Um, what we're talking about are um, uh, federal district judges in the South in the 50s uh, and 60s. Uh, they were all white men. They had spent their entire lives uh, in um, a, a society that was segregated. Judge Boodle, uh, for example, uh, was uh, born in South Carolina, uh, raised in South Carolina and in, in Georgia uh, at a time when segregation of the races was um, a way of life. It, it was a, a given. Um, and in Judge Boodle's case in particular, uh, my research uh, uncovered uh, uh, nothing to indicate that Judge Boodle um, uh, had a particular interest uh, or mission uh, related to civil rights. The, the one case that he uh, was involved in um, that, that touched these issues, he represented some white citizens of Macon who were trying to make sure that a new swimming pool being built in Macon was not going to be uh, integrated. So if you look at his, his background and the culture he grew up in and maybe that one little bit of, of evidence of something he was involved in, I think that would uh, tell you that uh, to say that he would be known um, as a civil rights um, pioneer, in mm. a sense, uh, was extremely unlikely. There's something particularly fateful about Judge Boodle going onto the bench when he did. Uh, tell us, when did he become a federal judge? Well, the timing of his service is, is really um, uh, something that the, you just couldn't make up this coincidence. Uh, he was confirmed uh, by the Senate. Uh, as a United States District Judge on May 18th, 1954, mm. one day after the Supreme Court of the United States issued its opinion in Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, and of course, that was the case in which the court said that separate but equal doesn't cut it. Uh, and uh, that uh, the public schools uh, in the United States as a matter of constitutional law uh, would, be, uh, would no longer be segregated. Uh, so Judge Boodle in, in, goes on the bench right there at the beginning of, um, uh, of the civil rights era related to education in the South. Uh, 
So he literally takes the bench right at the judicial heyday of civil rights. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there had been uh, obviously litigation going on years before that led up to Brown versus Board of Education. So it wasn't right at the beginning. Uh, but once Brown versus Board of Education is in place uh, and is the law of the land, the cases that followed it in an attempt to enforce it, uh, that was the era when uh, Judge Poodle uh, was on the bench in Macon. So the name of the case that would ultimately become the defining mark of Judge Boodle's legacy was Holmes versus Danner. Why wasn't it called Holmes versus the University of Georgia? And who was Danner? Well, Danner was the um, registrar of the University of Georgia, Walter Danner. And so he was the uh, official who was charged with the responsibility and the power uh, to admit or deny uh, applicants uh, to the university. So he was therefore the uh, appropriate official uh, to be sued uh, and against whom an order could be entered, um, you know, compelling him uh, to do uh, one thing or another or forbidding him from doing one thing or another. Once um, uh, Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter uh, filed their lawsuit, things moved very, very quickly. Um, they applied to become students in July of 1959. Um, the university strung them along uh, for uh, a, a year, uh, and they finally filed their suit on September 2nd, uh, 1960. Judge Boodle tried that case uh, three months later, uh, in December of 1960, and on January 6, 1961, uh, he issued his order uh, that uh, the University of Georgia uh, could not deny admission to Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter. So from the initial filing of their case to his final judgment was just over four months. So what was happening between July of 1959 when they applied for admission to UGA and uh, filing their lawsuit in September of 1960? Well, I mean, they they. Like any other applicant, they had to apply and have their uh, materials reviewed. Uh, but what was really going on was that the University of Georgia uh, was dragging its feet. What they kept telling um, uh, Holmes and Hunter was, well, we can't consider your application because uh, we have um, uh, limited facilities uh, at the university. And so we're not admitting uh, students at this time. Uh, well, you know, meanwhile, I mean, these are two outstanding young people uh, who want to go to college. They had um, ambitions in their lives and they were not going to just sit around and, and wait. So what they did was um, uh, Holmes um, uh, started college at Morehouse. Uh, Hunter went to Wayne State uh, in Detroit and they began their freshman years. But throughout that year, uh, they continued to be in touch with the University of Georgia in an attempt to, at that point, transfer hmm. uh, and to be um, uh, admitted um, as, uh, as the first black students at the University of Georgia. At, at every turn, uh, the university uh, stalled them, uh, uh, mostly with this uh, story that there were limited facilities that made it impossible to consider their applications. Who were the lawyers handling? Holmes and Hunter versus Danner. Well, they had an all-star cast uh, of people to, to help them. Uh, Donald Hollowell at that time was a, a leading civil rights attorney uh, in uh, Atlanta. Um, Constance Baker Motley was also one of their lawyers and uh, uh, later Judge Motley uh, uh, was an attorney with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. 
Um, later, she became the first African-American female federal judge in the United States uh, uh, history. Uh, they also had on their team a, a young lawyer I mentioned uh, earlier named Horace Ward. Uh, and he had gone to work for uh, uh, Mr. Hollowell and was part of the team representing Holmes and Hunter. And Horace Ward uh, uh, later became a United States district judge uh, in Atlanta. So it was quite an all-star cast representing these plaintiffs. And Judge Ward had a rather unique connection to this case, did he not? Well, he did, and um, and that was because he had been in the shoes of Holmes and Hunter. Hmm. Uh, he had um, tried for years uh, to be admitted to the University of Georgia Law School, uh, and the university again stalled him uh, at uh, at every turn. Uh, and eventually, uh, he decided uh, that he was going to get his legal education. Uh, and uh, since it wasn't apparently going to be anytime soon at the University uh, of uh, Georgia, uh, he uh, went to the Northwestern University uh, in Chicago to obtain his law degree. By June of 1951, it became clear that I would not get admitted. I had refused out-of-state aid, and uh, the registrar had told me that my application was considered and was hereby denied. In uh, the spring of 1952, uh, after the rules had been changed, uh, we decided, at least I decided on the advice of counsel, that we would no longer seek to satisfy the new requirements, but would file a lawsuit. And it was a, and it was a significant victory to open up a state university who had denied Horace Ward years earlier. So there's a lot of poetic justice there. And that Horace could um, be denied himself and come back and be counseled to Charlene Hunter and Hamilton Holmes. Uh, my mother would say the Lord moves in mysterious ways. That was Horace Ward and Vernon Jordan. And Vernon Jordan had a rather distinctive role in this case himself, didn't he? And that's another amazing thing about this, uh, about this story. Of course, uh, you know, Vernon Jordan has gone on to uh, a distinguished career doing so many different things as president of the uh, Urban League, as an advisor to, to President Clinton. But, you know, at, at this time, uh, Vernon Jordan had graduated from law school, but he had not yet been admitted uh, to the bar. Uh, and he was working with uh, lawyers Hollowell, uh, Motley, and Ward uh, in the preparation uh, of this case. And he actually had a very important uh, role uh, because uh, the lawyers for Hunter and Holmes um, uh, asked uh, for the university's permission to inspect the files of the uh, applicants uh, who had been uh, admitted uh, so that they could compare and see whether... Um, uh, there were people being admitted uh, who had comparable credentials to their clients who uh, who had not been admitted. Uh, the university did not voluntarily uh, uh, allow them to review those records, but Judge Boodle ordered them to. Uh, and Vernon Jordan uh, went uh, and and went through those uh, records. He, and he went to work and he found, uh, among other things, he found the file of a white student. Uh, with credentials that were remarkably like Charlene uh, Hunter's. Uh, the white student had been admitted uh, while the university told Hunter that she uh, could not be admitted because, again, of limited facilities. Uh, and uh, the story is that when uh, Mr. Jordan found those documents, um, uh, he turned to Constance Baker Motley and said, uh, this is it. How did UGA respond? Well, you know, at trial, I mean, university officials uh, just flatly denied uh, that there was any policy 
uh, of not admitting uh, black uh, applicants. Uh, and of course, there was no policy that was written down uh, to that effect. Uh, but by showing that the university's actions were inconsistent with these statements, that, uh, you know, that, for example, this white applicant was admitted, but Charlene Hunter uh, you know, supposedly couldn't be admitted because of limited facilities, uh, the lawyers basically just destroyed the credibility of the university uh, officials. Uh, and uh, Charlene Hunter later wrote about this as she watched the trial, and her reaction to it was uh, that uh, her lawyers uh, scored big points uh, with what she called the evidence of the university's duplicity uh, and deception. Atlanta attorney Joyce Gist Lewis helps us get a sense of how that evidence was used in her recreation of Constance Baker Motley's examination of UGA admissions counselor Paul Key. Would you look at that transcript and tell me what kind of student she was since you evaluate transcripts of transfer students? Was she an A student? Well, I would say that of course she is not an A student because there is not an A on the transcript. Do you see any B's on there? Yes, there are two B's and the rest are C's. And how did Judge Boodle view all of this testimony? What was his thinking? Well, Judge Boodle um, uh, sat there for four days. Charlene Hunter later wrote that you know, he was just in, inscrutable, that he didn't, he didn't give any clue. Uh, during the trial, what he was thinking. Uh, but in the end, uh, he concluded, having heard the evidence, that despite uh, all of the denials from the university officials, that there was, in fact, a tacit policy uh, not to admit uh, any black students, and that that is why Holmes and Hunter uh, were not uh, admitted. It didn't take much evidence. I had common sense. I could see, I could see they were black, and uh, I knew what was going on as everyone else did. It didn't take much evidence to convince me that they were denied admission solely because they were black. Uh, to him, uh, I think the, the best way to put it is that uh, their actions spoke louder than their words. Uh, and uh, that such a policy, whether written down or tacit, uh, was a violation of the constitutional rights of, of Holmes and Hunter as set forth by the Supreme Court uh, and that therefore uh, they were entitled to be admitted. What do you make of Judge Boodle saying it didn't take much evidence? I think Judge Boodle may be um, uh, being modest there uh, about his, uh, his job as a judge there. I mean, there was a lot of evidence to be uh, taken into account, uh, but uh, the, the evidence really was overwhelming that uh, Holmes and Hunter uh, would have been admitted, uh, but for the color of their skin. On January 6, 1961, Judge Boodle made his ruling, ordering the University of Georgia to admit Charlene Hunter and Hamilton Holmes as the first two black students in the college's 175-year history. Next week, we'll continue our conversation with Professor Longan and we'll talk more about the aftermath of Holmes versus Danner, some of the political shenanigans that caused a few wrinkles that had to be ironed out, and what personal impact the case had on Judge Boodle. Their constitutional rights were not to be sacrificed. They would not yield to violence and disorder. Uh, and he wrote that the, the lawful orders of, of this court uh, 
uh, will not be frustrated by violence and disorder. It's worth emphasizing, I think, that he did not take any of this lightly. I mean, he, he knew exactly what he was doing. He suffered some personal consequences, but he felt that it was uh, his duty. What endures uh, and what Judge Boodle's example helps to maybe to, to, to make sure it endures and what can keep us or, or bring us together uh, is a continuing commitment to the rule of law. That and more will be part of our next episode when we continue our conversation with Patrick Longen, the William Augustus Boodle Chair at Mercy University School of Law in Macon, Georgia. Thank you for listening and be sure to join us next week for Hidden Legal Figures, the podcast. In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in February 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net.